Amen. My name is Kurt. I'm one of the pastors here, and I would just uh, continue the prayer that Linda has uh, started for us in asking God's blessing on our time of looking into His Word. Uh, we are in our uh, series on Daniel, uh, Hope in a Hostile World, and we're looking into chapter 2. Um, if you're familiar with the story, uh, this is a story where uh, Greg has already uh, visibly illustrated for us uh, Daniel's uh, mode of fighting uh, with, uh, in King Nebuchadnezzar's court, so we're going to hear more about that. Um, but it's a long story, and so we're going to take a little bit different tack today rather than putting the words up on the screen and uh, reading along because there's a lot of text. Uh, you can follow along in your own Bible if you've brought it with you or if you use a device to do that. Uh, but I'd invite you to listen uh, with your ears, listen with your imagination. Uh, biblical stories are intended to invite us to, to listen with a different part of our minds than just our intellect. They're, they're, they're intended to invite us to put ourselves into the scene, to, to try and imagine the context in which the characters are experiencing life, to, uh, to see the visuals, to hear the sounds, to, to smell the smells, and to try and kind of imagine what life would be like if we were in that situation. So I'm going to tell you a story today, and I invite you to enter into the story. If you want to close your eyes and listen, that's great, just don't fall asleep. Or if you want to just uh, relax and, uh, you know, fade off into your imagination as you enter into the story, do whatever you need to do to be comfortable. But I just want to tell you a story today from Daniel chapter 2 that begins by saying, in the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled and he could not sleep. So the king summoned the magicians, the enchanters, sorcerers, and the astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. When they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I have had a dream that troubles me, and I want to know what it means. Then the astrologers answered the king, may the king live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we will interpret it. The king replied to the astrologers, This is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I will have you cut into pieces and your houses turned into piles of rubble. But if you tell me the dream and explain it, you will receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. So tell me the dream and interpret it for me. Once more they replied, uh, let the king tell his servants the dream, and, and we'll interpret it for you. Then the king answered, I am certain that you are trying to gain time, because you realize that this is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me the dream, there is only one penalty for you. You have conspired to tell me misleading and wicked things hoping the situation will change. So then, tell me the dream, and I will know that you can interpret it for me. The astrologers answered the king, there is no one on earth who can do what the king asks. <laughs> Foreshadowing. <laughs> 
No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live among humans. This made the king so angry and furious that he ordered the execution of all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree was issued to put the wise men to death, and men were sent to look for Daniel and his friends to put them to death. And when Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, had gone out to put to death the wise men of Babylon, Daniel spoke to him with wisdom and tact. He asked the king's officer, why did the king issue such a harsh order? Arioch then explained the matter to Daniel, and at this Daniel went into the king and asked for time so that he might interpret the dream for him. Then Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. He urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. During the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. And then Daniel praised the God of heaven and said, Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He deposes kings and raises up others. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and light dwells with him. I thank and praise you, God of my ancestors. You have given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what we asked of you. You have made known to us the dream of the king. Then Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to execute the wise men of Babylon, and said to them, Do not execute the wise men of Babylon. Take me to the king, and I will interpret his dream for him. Arioch took Daniel to the king at once and said, I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can tell the king what his dream means. The king asked Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, Are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? Daniel replied, No wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the days to come. Your dream and the visions that pass through your mind as you were lying on your bed are these. As your majesty was lying there, your mind turned to the things to come, and the revealer of mysteries showed you what is going to happen. As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me not because I have greater wisdom than anyone else alive, but so that you, so that your majesty may know the interpretation and that you may understand what went through your mind. Your majesty looked, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. 
It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were all broken into pieces and became like chaff on the threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream, and now we will interpret it to the king. Your majesty, you are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. Your hands he has placed all man under your hand he has placed under all mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds of the sky. Wherever they live he has made you ruler over them all. You are that head of gold. After you, another kingdom will arise inferior to yours. Next, a third kingdom of bronze will rule over the whole earth. Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything. And as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all the others. Just as you saw that the feet and the toes were partly baked clay and partly iron, so this will be a divided kingdom. Yet it will have some of the strength of iron, even as you saw iron mixed with clay. As the toes were partly iron and partly clay, so this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. And just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be a mixture and not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. Nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it it itself will endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of the mountain, but not by human hands. A rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true, and its interpretation is trustworthy. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel and paid him honor and ordered that an offering and incense be presented to him. The king said to Daniel, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal the mystery. Then the king placed Daniel in a high position and lavished many gifts on him. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and placed him in charge of all of its wise men. Moreover, at Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego administrators over the whole province of Babylon, while Daniel himself remained at the royal court. And seen. quite a story, right? Nebuchadnezzar's dream, of course, is interesting, and we hear that it predicts about future empires and the the rise and fall of of kings and peoples. We, of course, become curious, and we want to know, well, which kingdoms are those, and when does that happen, and how do we place that in, in the historical context of where we live today? However, most scholars will say that it's important uh, to explore those aspects, but to not allow our our curiosity about the, the content of his dream to distract us from the main point of what the story in chapter 2 is trying to tell us, and that it's only God's wisdom can reveal the mysteries of life. 
that God knows and is in control of the future is uh, a, a, an important part of the story here uh, that, than the actual content of, of what that future entails. And it's particularly important to people who find themselves in exile and under oppression and in hostile circumstances. We, we need to understand and to know that the God of the Bible is the God who is also in control of history and the one who is in control of the rise and the fall of empires. Amen? And more than that, it is, it is the God who is able to, in any circumstance, then to walk with them and to bless them and to give them a pathway forward through the circumstances of their life, knowing that he is with them and that he can bless them like no other. And so as we read the story of Daniel chapter 2, we cannot help but also be reminded, I think, of the story of Joseph, right? You see some easy similarities that, that Joseph was also in exile in the land of Egypt and was invited to come out of prison in order to interpret a, a, a dream that was causing anxiety for the Pharaoh. And, and as a result of interpreting the Pharaoh's dream, he was elevated to a position over all of Egypt. And we can see the similarities, right? Both Joseph and Daniel become models for godly behavior to God's people who live in foreign and hostile cultures. And in the story of Daniel 2, we see the context being a kind of competition between Daniel and the wise men of Babylon. But as we've been saying, behind the, the earthly circumstances that present themselves on the surface, at a deeper level, the true competition reveals itself to be between the God of the Bible and the gods that these enchanters and diviners claim to worship, these false idols that they believe have power, yet uh, in, when push comes to shove, they have no ability to produce any kinds of results. These wise men are... Uh, diviners, meaning that they're different than the kinds of prophets that we see in the Bible, because diviners uh, interpret signs and omens. They're, they're, they're looking at the world around them, and they're looking for uh, the ways that the gods might be giving them clues and hints as to uh, what's true or what might be coming. Uh, and, and so they're astrologers. They're looking to the stars, and they're, uh, they, they may be looking at uh, the different kinds of abnormal births, or apparently they like to to examine sheep livers, right? I don't know. There's something about sheep livers was foretelling. <laughs> but as these supposed wise men claim in the story, there's no way that they can tell the king what his dream was, much less interpret what it means. Now, Daniel, on the other hand, while being trained in all of the same kinds of divination arts of Babylon, that's kind of what they were doing for three years in their, their training period as they were taken into exile, uh, the story reveals to us that it's not because of his superior wisdom or his intellect or his own natural ability that he is able to be successful in overcoming the wise men of Babylon, but it's because his God is the true God and is able to come through where the false gods are not. Nebuchadnezzar, for some reason, the story doesn't tell us, was doubting the integrity of his own wise men, right? Perhaps he realizes how easy it is to manufacture interpretations based on assumed or attributed symbolism that may or may not be accurate. Oh, yeah, king, you, uh, you saw this statue that had all these different metals. Of course, well, I can tell you what that's about, <laughs> 
But in the context of the larger story of Daniel, we assume that behind this suspicion that he has of his own wise men and his stubbornness in the matter to not reveal his dream to them, the hand of God is at work motivating Nebuchadnezzar to set up this win-lose battle between God and the gods of Babylon. And in their frustration, it's actually these wise men of Babylon, these diviners themselves, that utter, utter the statement that sets up the main lesson for the chapter, right? Remember verses 10 and 11? They say, There is no one on earth who can do what the king asks. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods. And they do not live among humans. But with that, the king in his anger orders all of the wise men in Babylon to be put to death, which now, of course, includes Daniel and his friends. And so with their very lives in the balance, we wait to see how Daniel and how ultimately God will respond to resolve this seemingly impossible, life-threatening situation in which they find themselves. And so what we see then unfold here is a part of what the Bible has revealed to be the heart of true wisdom. And what scholars suggest is that as we go through the stories of Daniel, we unexpectedly maybe begin to to realize that the, the book of Daniel is one of the wisdom books of the Bible. We don't often think of Daniel as a wisdom book. We think of, you know, Job and Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes as the, the collected wisdom books of the Bible. But, but here what we see is Daniel begins to emerge as the consummate wise man of, of the Old Testament world and, and models for us what it looks like to, to pursue wise living in a hostile culture. Wisdom is... What makes Daniel successful in this world that he's been taken, not because of his own strength and intellect, but his humility and his willingness to seek God and to trust in God and to receive from God this revelation that was needed in order to save him from the situation he found himself. Thus, like every other wisdom book in the Bible, at its core, true wisdom is revealed to not come from ourselves or to come from the world around us, but to come from having a relationship with the living God. That's why Proverbs 1, 7 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And there it means not like be afraid of God, but respect God, have an, have, have an awe of God, have a, a healthy understanding of the amazingness of who the mighty God of the universe is and understand that this is the person that you have been invited to be in relationship with. And when you come in awesome humility before the true and living God and recognize that you've been invited into the throne room of the King then you will begin to understand how to receive the wisdom that only God can provide because it's fools that then despise that kind of wisdom and instruction. True wisdom doesn't have a human origin and can't be discovered apart from God himself. So what Daniel begins to reveal to us, which the rest of the Bible then supports, is that true wisdom is not a lesson to be learned or a class that you can take, but it's a relationship that you have to pursue. Let me say that one more time. True wisdom is not a lesson that you can learn or a class that you can take, but it's a relationship that you have to pursue. 
Daniel's wisdom and knowledge came from conversation and from prayer with God. Here we might also begin to think of the words of the Apostle Paul, whose mindset was turned completely upside down, right? By the grace and the love of God that he found in Jesus. One scholar has suggested that 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20 could be the model for Daniel chapter 2. You might remember Paul's words there. He says, where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Instead, Paul claims true wisdom, the true wisdom that God has revealed comes through the relationship that God has made available to us in and through his son, Jesus Christ. In Colossians 2, 3, he says, it's in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So for us to be wise, the story of Daniel is telling us we must first be united in a relationship with the God of the Bible. And for us to be united with the God of the Bible, the Apostle Paul tells us we must be united with his son Jesus through the power of his Holy Spirit. And it's only in connection with our relationship with God in this way that like Daniel, we are able to receive wisdom from God in the midst of the difficult circumstances that we find ourselves and receive the things that no man can do but only God can can do and that we too can find success in our own lives. And yet all the while we live in a, in a hostile culture where we've been taken into exile and we keep listening to the, the wisdom of the world and we think if we follow the ways of the world that there's other answers and there's other ways that we're going to do it, all the while ignoring the very wisdom that the Bible has been teaching for centuries saying that it only comes from God. Now, as we said, the actual content of Nebuchadnezzar's dream is intriguing, and while it's not the main, of the po main point of the story here, it's part of the larger story of the book of Daniel and that it's trying to tell. The image of the statue that represents various kingdoms that are ultimately crushed by this rock that is cut out from the ground, but not by human hands, right? has similar parallels to Daniel chapter 7 and is really a part of the genre of apocalyptic that we're going to reserve for when we get to part 2 of our series and we work through chapters 7 through 12 later on. And we're going to unpack the possible meaning of the dream more at that point. But at this stage in the story, the crucial element of the dream is that successive world empires in time succumb to the power of a mysterious rock that represents God's kingdom that will never be destroyed, Daniel tells us all those years ago. And in keeping with the overall theme of Daniel, the dream supports the main message of the story that though the circumstances appear to favor the power of ungodly human personalities, institutions, governments, and even empires, nonetheless, God has the power to overcome them all. And God promises that no matter what, how things appear in your life and in your circumstances, if you put your trust in Him, He is able to see you through. So perhaps the most significant piece of the dream here is the point that this rock is, that is so devastating even to human empires was cut out of the ground, not by human hands. You see, God is signaling for his people and for us that a, a key principle regarding the kingdom of God that we must never forget is that God's kingdom is never established by human effort, but by the will and the power of God himself. Let me say that one one more time. 
God's kingdom is never established by human effort, but by the will and power of God himself. Does that mean we're not involved? Does that mean that we have to participate? Does that mean that it doesn't require anything of us? No, that's not what it means. It means that our power, our strength, our responsibility is to first go to God and to trust in his wisdom and his strength and to respond to his leading. I think too often the challenge is we become like the diviners and the enchanters and the, uh, the, the, the wise men of Babylon and we think through our own strength and our own wisdom we can build God's kingdom and we can do church and we can figure out how to do our own lives. And we, we skip God and we uh, cut God out of the picture and all the while we miss, as we've been saying, the very thing that we need most and the very thing that people in the world most need to see and to taste and to touch and to experience is the thing that none of us can do, but only God can do. The mysterious and the miraculous things that God has said, if we put our trust in His Son Jesus and we pursue an abiding relationship with Him, that in, in the power of the work of His Holy Spirit in us, we would not only be able to do the things that Jesus did, but He said you would do even greater things than that. So as we seek to participate in God's kingdom in our day, as we learn what it means to be church together in a broken and a fallen world in this post-pandemic, post-modern, post-Christian society in which we find ourselves, can we learn from the story of Daniel that the wisdom and the insight and the power that we need to be successful as human beings and to be successful Christians and to have successful marriages and families in this hostile world comes only through our relationship with God through Jesus. If we want to find wisdom and knowledge that we need to prosper and to be successful as God's people and as a church seeking to do life in ministry in the midst of, of a hostile culture, the first and most important thing that we can do to enrich our own relationship with Jesus and one another is to understand that we need to help one another go deeper in our intimacy with Jesus. And it's only by going deeper in our intimacy with Jesus that we can go wider in our influence for God's kingdom. Terry Walling, who is a, a, a professor from Fuller and wrote his book on transitions called Stuck that we did a series on a while ago, said the depth of your relationship with Jesus is, is proportional to the impact of your life for him. I think that's true. And I think that's what Daniel's message is telling us as well. In Luke 20, the parable of the talents that Jesus taught his disciples, Jesus himself identifies with the vineyard owner's son whom the tenants who wanted to kill all of the representatives that the vineyard owner was selling because they didn't want to pay the rent, right? Uh, he identifies himself as the very son of the vineyard owner who came who the tenants wanted to, to kill, and then at the very end, to try and help people interpret what the meaning of the parable was, says, uh, quotes Psalm 118.22, and he says, Jesus looked directly at them and asked, then what is the meaning of that which is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And then he goes right on in verse 18 to say, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. 
And scholars suggest that he is not only quoting Psalm 118, but he's referring directly to Daniel 2, and he is himself claiming here that he is the rock that was cut out of the ground, not by human hands. And he is the one who crushes kings and empires and is establishing the kingdom of God that will never fail and that will live for eternity and that will grow to become a mountain that will fill the whole earth. But brothers and sisters, do you understand that the wisdom of that kingdom is not the wisdom of this world and that that kingdom that Jesus began over 2,000 years ago is the same kingdom that is expanding and filling the earth and is the kingdom that will live forever. And though we may not be able to see it present around us with our human eyes, it is nonetheless the very presence and power of God that he invites us to live in as the people of God each and every moment and every day. And that's what it means to be the church is that we are the people who are invited to live in that kingdom and to, through spiritual eyes, understand the wisdom and the power that comes from having that abiding relationship with God each and every day so that we can live this life that we've been called to live as followers of Jesus, not because of our own wisdom, not because of our own strength, not because of how good we are, because face-to-face, if we're really honest with each other, none of us are really all that great, are we? (laughs) I mean, we try, I think we're people with good intention and we want to be good people and there's some days that we're really successful and there's other days where we're really not. But you understand, that's why Jesus came. That's why Jesus died. That's why he gave his life because he knew we weren't going to be perfect. He knew we couldn't save ourselves. He knew there was no other way that we were going to make it to heaven other than to his his grace and his mercy to say, you don't have to do it. I'll do it for you. All you have to do is accept the, the free gift of my love and my grace and come back into relationship with me and we'll figure it out together. And there's a wisdom in that kind of love. There's a wisdom in that kind of grace that turns the tables on the wisdom of this world. And because of that, the people in this world will look at that kind of love. They'll look at that kind of grace and they'll say, that kind of a lifestyle is stupid, it's dumb, it's foolishness. And if you go that way, you're just off, you know, in crazy land. Ah, that's just a crutch for people who can't deal with real life. Oh, man, you people who, who, who need church and who need Jesus, you know, that's all just for, for, for people who, who, who don't have it together and, and you're trying to find something to find meaning in life because you can't find it in yourself and you, and you can't pull yourself up by your bootstraps, so you have to go find hope somewhere else. Amen, <laughs> Amen right? If you really start to drill down into the truth of the matter, they've got it so upside down backwards they don't even realize that they are believing the lie. 
And that's the, the, the truth is that Jesus comes to pull the veil off the lie of the world to say, no, there's a better way and there's a different way. And the truth of the gospel that Jesus reveals is that the way that God had intended from before the creation of the world is the way to happiness. It is the way to peace. It is the way to a healthy, functioning, flourishing human society of people who live in harmony with one another, who live in humility and look out for one another, and who in generosity care for one another, and that there is no one in need, and there's neither crying, nor tear, nor shame, nor brokenness, and that's the vision of the kingdom of God when it comes to its fullness, that we know because we live in that kingdom now will one day be the hope that is revealed when Christ comes again. Amen? Amen. It's the power of that kingdom that is in our hands today. It's what people need to come to realize is present and available. Even the, the, the diviners of Babylon said the gods don't live among human beings. And the reality is that the people in our world today believe that same thing. Well, if God's real... It's possible, but I don't know where he is. God might be real, it's possible, but, you know, if he is, man, he's kind of a mean son of a gun. God might be real, it's possible, but, man, which way is the right way? Because there's so many, don't all paths kind of lead to heaven? I mean, how do you choose? (laughs) There's so much confusion and, and, and discontent and misunderstanding in the world. Brothers and sisters, people need the light of the gospel, but it's not going to be by beating them over the head with the Bible and trying to compete with them for propositional truth to argue them into heaven. The only thing that's going to convince them of the propositional truths that are in Scripture, because those are real, but is the evidence of the truth of what those propositional truths say, that the presence of God in heaven is here now because Jesus came and he he gave his life and then he poured out his spirit and through the people who live in the power of that spirit and in that kingdom of God are manifesting that same presence today. And if we're not manifesting that presence, if we're not living out that kingdom, they're not going to believe those propositional truths that the scripture reveals because they're going to say, well, that sounds great, but I don't see the evidence. And that's why I would say, men and women, we have to be honest with each other. And maybe it's not for us individually, or, or maybe it is. But I think the church in America genuinely has a hypocrisy problem that we have to address. Because hypocrisy isn't about having false beliefs or thinking the wrong things, right? Hypocrisy is not living out what we say we believe. And what we say we believe, if I understand it right, isn't about going back to the Old Testament and having a system of religious rules and rituals that if we follow them, we can claim ourselves to be good and on the in crowd and we have our ticket to heaven one day, but it's, it's understanding that we've been re- set free from all of those rules and rituals and we don't have to live by those anymore because we now have a living relationship with God through Jesus Christ and all of those rules take care of themselves because all of those rules were intended to teach us how to love God and love each other.
But you know what we need most in order to fulfill the call of Jesus to love God and love one another? We need the wisdom of God. And where does the wisdom of God come from, Daniel tells us? From our relationship with him. How will we learn from the wisdom of Daniel and seek to expand the influence of our ministries for Jesus by first seeking to increase our depth of intimacy with Jesus? And then as we seek to be salt and light for Jesus in a hostile world, in an increasingly polarized and volatile and non-Christian society, how can we take the focus off what we can do in our own strength, in our own wisdom, and seek again to open ourselves to the power of what only God can do, and a willingness to allow Him to do those things among us that only He can do. And and, and maybe that's here at church and what it means for us to be an organized family of faith that is pursuing a mission together, Or, or maybe it's in our homes and in marriages. Have you thought about what it might be like for your marriage If you sat down and like Daniel, the first thing you did is you sought God and you said, God, what I need in my marriage today, what I need in my marriage this week is something that I can't do. But I know that you're in heaven and that you're a God of the impossible and I know you can do. And so, God, I'm going to seek your wisdom, and when you show up, and when you respond, and you give me the answer, I'm going to respond in obedience like Daniel, and and you're going to solve the issue. How many people have done that in their marriage? How many people are willing to do that in their marriage? Or as parents, how many people have any challenges with their kids? Right? But, but as parents, don't we, don't we try and bring all of our human wisdom and, and knowledge and we, we, we wring our hands and we like, what can we do and how do we do this and how do we navigate all these challenges of, of parenting and, and growing kids and, and the different stages of development and, and try and protect them from, from the hostile world around them and help them to grow in the way that, that they, they, they should grow and, and help them to grow in the knowledge of the Lord. And, and all the while, maybe what we need most is to spend time fighting on our knees like Daniel and say, God, you tell me what to do to parent my kids because I don't know. God, how do do I do this? Give me insight. Help me understand how to deal with this situation. Is it just possible that God may actually answer you, that God may give you an insight or a clue or some wisdom how to deal with a situation that that there's no self-help book that you're going to go read from any psychologist that's going to give you the answer for that situation, but maybe God will. Do you think there's a more loving, wise parent in the world than God the Father? If you take time to listen to his wisdom, you think he might have a few hints to share with you as a parent? Or what about in our friendships or our dating relationships, in our work life or our careers? Brothers and sisters, do you understand that God wants to be intimately involved in every aspect of your life and he has wisdom to share with you? He doesn't want to control it. He wants to bless it. And he wants to share those things, but we have to be willing to open those aspects of our life and to hear from him and be willing to respond. 
As we wrap up, I just want to take one moment, maybe 60 seconds. I just want to invite you to close your eyes. Just take a moment, think back on the story of Daniel in this life-threatening situation that he was in. And think about how his first instinct was to go to God. To seek God's wisdom and insight and prayer. And to invite his friends to come together and to say, let's go to God together and wait until we get an answer. And then when God answered him, they thanked God and they praised him for giving him the solution to the dilemma they were facing. And now think about what dilemma are you facing today? Could be large, could be small. What is it that you're wrestling with? What is it that you have to overcome? What is it that's weighing you down? Will you go to God and seek His wisdom and insight for that dilemma? And if God provides an answer, will you respond in obedience and thank Him and praise Him for the solution that He provides? Heavenly Father, we thank You that You are a God of love. And we know that you are a God who does not remain silent, but you are a God who speaks. You speak through your word, and you speak through your spirit, and you speak through your people. And we know, God, that every day, in every way, even creation speaks of the glory of your mighty, loving presence in our lives. Forgive us today, God, for the ways that we have turned for, to the world and to ourselves for hope and for wisdom to how to navigate life. And give us courage and strength, God, to seek you first, to go deeper in our intimacy with you through Jesus and to respond in genuine, genuine trust and obedience when you show up and you answer our prayers and you lead us out of darkness and into marvelous light. It's in your name we pray. Amen.